While we were in Washington, D.C., we got to sit down and talk to Dr. Margaret Weidekamp, the chairperson of the Space History Department of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. She also curates the museum's social and cultural history of spaceflight collection. And that is what our interview will focus on today. We need a new report card. Let us know how we're doing via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 183 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 183 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing okay. I'm fighting a little uh, virus on my end, but other than that, I'm doing fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to. Go back to bed once we're done recording this. It's a Tuesday. My employer is going to love hearing that. But uh, <laughs> other than that, I'm doing great, though, other than that. So how are you doing, Dave? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Still deep in renovation work, but getting getting things done. Things are making, making progress, which is good. So I think it's time we crack on with this week's topic. Let's get straight in. Today, we introduced the last of the guests that we interviewed while we were at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. last month. Dr. Margaret Weiterkamp is the department chair of the Space History Department and curates the museum's social and cultural history of spaceflight collection. More than 5,000 artifacts that include space memorabilia and space science fiction objects. She is also the author of Space Craze, America's Enduring Fascination with Real and Imagined Spaceflight, which came out in 2022, and Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program, which was originally published in 2004. We'll talk a bit about both of these topics within the interview. Weidekamp earned a BA from the University of Pittsburgh and an MA and PhD in history from Cornell University. As with the previous two interviews from our trip last month, there is more to this interview than you'll hear today, and we have a special episode coming up in a few weeks where you'll hear more from Dr. Weidekamp as well as more from Dr. Muir Harmony, Dr. Lavasser. But back to today's interview, Dave, let's crack on. Zip up your spacesuit and check for leaks. It's time for the Space and Things Podcast. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate that you've given up some time to talk to us. Before we get into your work, I'd love to know a little bit of background in terms of how you end up being the chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian. So was spaceflight always a big deal for you, or was it something that professionally took over somehow? Oh, I would say the latter, professionally took over somehow. Although when you look back, you can draw some kind of straighter lines than they felt in the living of it. I grew up as a Star Wars kid and became a Star Trek fan as an adult. Um, so I was exactly the right age. I had just more or less learned to read when we saw Star Wars in 1977. So I could read The Crawl. I was very excited about that. And then I was writing this dissertation on women's history about a women's astronaut testing program as part of my doctoral program. And I came to D.C. to spend a year at the NASA headquarters history office. And I thought that's great because I will get to do all of the space stuff and then 
I can be done with that and I'll go back to doing women's history. And by the end of the year, I had kind of really reconnected. I was seeing so many connections between the space science fiction that I loved, having grown up as a shuttle kid. And so following all of that, I was actually at Sally Ride's launch just because that's when my family was on vacation in Florida. I just saw so many connections and really got interested in it. And so came back to graduate school and started teaching a space history and science fiction class that I called Gender, Race, Society, and Space. Wow. And that became the path to then ending up at the National Air and Space Museum in charge of our memorabilia and space science fiction objects. Wow. So you recently published Space Craze, which discusses the intersectionality between spaceflight and pop culture. In walking around the museum, it's clear that a lot of effort has been made to tell that side of the story. So do you have a favorite museum artifact that sort of sums up how these two things interact? Which child is your favorite? Right, That's the question. (laughs) Yeah, that's a hard question. That's a tough one. So first of all, I would say that as much as we have lots of pop culture in the museum right now, I really think that was not a new thing, right? There was a Star Trek and a Jules Verne exhibit and uh, examples of Konstantin Tsiolkovsky's imagination in rocketry and spaceflight when this building opened in 1976. So that connection between how spaceflight has been imagined and how it has been realized is something that I think the people putting this museum together was thinking about in the 1970s. And we've gotten more sophisticated, I think, about the kind of scholarship that we can put behind that. And that's part of what I was trying to answer with Space Craze is I could see the idea for the book as soon as I came on this job in 2004, which is really my colleagues were pressing me on. I would say, I want to collect this thing because it's about how spaceflight is popular in this era. I want to collect this other thing that's about how spaceflight is popular in this era. And they would say, well, those are not the same, the 50s and the 80s, not the same moment. What's going on there? And so became a long kind of process as a researching scholar, which is part of what the curators do here, to try to pull that apart. What does that mean? in the 40s, the 50s, the 70s, the 80s, now. And it really took a very long time to play that out and in the end to try to bring that story almost all the way up to the present. I finished the Sunday that the book was due on the Monday. I was adding new content that had literally just been released that afternoon about the Halo television series. And so it's a great way, I think, to look at the collections that we have here and think about what's the larger context for them about space flood enthusiasm, about what people are willing to fund, willing to uh, vote for, but also just excited to go and see. So the book discusses space and sci-fi fandoms as well, and it really goes into how these things don't occur randomly. They don't really incur, they don't occur in isolation, and they aren't frivolous either. So have you seen any space-related you know, or sci-fi fandoms emerge over the last few decades that you may find maybe a little surprising? Fandoms are so much fun, and I wanted to put them really cheek to jowl with actual spaceflight, because I think they are. I think that, you know, the folks at NASA knew that. They started going and sending representatives to Star Trek conventions back in the 70s when they were starting, because they recognized that's our audience as well, for the real thing, are the people who are imagining what might be possible. And so when I'm looking at fandoms, I've really been impressed by how inclusive those communities can be, often women-led, very disability-friendly, very 
engaged in kind of the modern cultural uh, history scholarship of the way that you talk about gender and about race and about othering and really analyzing those things as texts in a really important way. The one that I found a lot of fun to follow was the fandom of the expanse because they were trying to take some of the space flight seriously the creators of those books and then the television show, because they were in the writer's room as well, were thinking explicitly about not white guys in space. They wanted to do something that was bouncing off of uh, what had been done before and what had been expected before. And I think that's part of what's fun about space science fiction fandoms is how self-aware they often are about their position and their connections to what's real and what's being imagined. And so the ways that they have been really trying to move the needle themselves. Absolutely. I think some hardcore space fans, if they heard, oh, there's a lot of popular culture stuff within the museum, might feel like that's not right. My own personal experience with it was I first time I came to the Aerosmith Base Museum was in 2019 with a friend who I was who was staying with, and they are a massive Star Trek Star Trek fan. And there we are, we're coming along to see Neil Armstrong's suit, which has just gone on display. And the thing that that made her day was the Enterprise uh, <laughs> exhibit you have downstairs, which is is one it's wonderful. And I think that people forget how powerful it is to have popular culture stuff as a learning tool and as an, as a gateway drug to to the real thing um and we see it when we've in, how many astronauts have we interviewed said oh yeah well, I was watching star trek when I when I was when I was younger how important can sci-fi in particular perhaps be to inspiring people to really take part in what is happening I think those conversations are very intertwined. And I often think about the artifacts in conversation because like you and your friend, most people don't come to a museum alone. And so it becomes a conversation. And I think that when we can put something like the Star Trek Starship Enterprise, that original prop from the 1960s television show in the same gallery, which once we take down the construction wall, it will be once again across the hall from the lunar module which is a spacecraft that doesn't look like any spaceship anybody expected for it to look like, but it's very functional. It really did extraordinary things. You can look at two really radical new designs coming out of almost exactly the same era being on the drawing board and maybe put them in conversation with each other and think about how the inspiration is a part of the execution. We know that the Apollo astronauts grew up in the Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon era, we talk to astronauts today and they were fans of Star Wars or Star Trek or they're currently fans or they're fans of Babylon 5 or they're watching The Expanse. And they're thinking about what those visions of what could be done, how that then influences what is done. And so I love those conversations. I uh, Our director uh, some years ago was a real skeptic of having uh, science fiction things in the museum. And his expression was always, maybe they'll learn something on the way out. (laughs) But the folks who come running in to see the science fiction stuff, maybe they'll wander past some real avionics on the way out. Um, But I think they do. And I think there's an awful lot of overlap between the people who are excited about seeing the real things and also who are excited about experiencing that, you know, on a movie screen or on their phone. Yeah. How much conversation is had about keeping 
that side of it up to date because there's always a danger that, that you, uh, and this is a phrase that Jennifer used earlier with us, you, you, you end up disney the museum a little bit. Guardians of the Galaxy could mm-hmm. be included, for example. Kids would love that and that yes. could bring them in. There, there's so many different things. But how, how much conversation is had of, this has just come out. Do we need to perhaps try and shoehorn something in to try and help a new generation you know, Star Trek has always reinvented itself. Star Wars has always reinvented itself. They're two great examples, but they're not the only only big things out there, are they? So is there a lot of thought given to it about the future in this regard? We think about the future a lot for people who are trained as historians. Yeah. And that's a challenge in actual space right now. There are so many new companies coming up. There are so many new things happening. And people come in, our visitors come to the National Air and Space Museum, and they see this as a place where they're going to get the authentic history, but they also see this as a place where they are going to be in touch with what's new and what's now in aviation and spaceflight. And so it is a challenge to keep the pop culture references up to date because those move so fast, but it's a real challenge to keep track of launches and spaceflights and who's going and where we're going and why, because that landscape is changing so much. It's so dynamic right now. And I think that there's always then the balance of that. We, uh, You said earlier, you know, the people who would be horrified. And I answer the letters from the people who write, oh, <laughs> could you desecrate the real artifacts with this imaginary spaceship? And their email, but I imagine that that's the tone. I think it's fairly (laughs) clear that that's the tone. That's what they Um, sound like. And I usually try to offer that kind of an answer about, you know, we're really trying to tell a well-rounded story about the people, the culture, the science, the technology, and how those are all a part of their time and really only exist in conversation with one another, in context with one another. And we hope then that it gives people lots of different entry points to see these real artifacts that we have for the nation and the world and to have a conversation with their group about what did we just see? What have we learned? Yeah. One other point on this, on in the Destination Moon exhibit, there's a fantastic wall display, but right behind Apollo 11, which, which covers a lot of popular culture, not just sci-fi, it also has the music aspect. Uh, there was a book out, I, in the last couple of years, I, it's one of two, and I don't want to say which one it was in case I get it wrong, where it, it talks about Kennedy's um, speech, the first one, declaring at Congress, we're going to go to the moon. And on the same night, Bob Dylan paid his first gig in New York. For, for me, that was, as I'm a musician, so that was a wonderful connection that I'd never put together before about how the timelines work, what else is going on in society at that point. The bigger picture of... Here is the 1960s and here is here is the Apollo program. But alongside it, you've got the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan. You've got the Woodstock generation. You've got soul music coming through in a, in a different way, as well as you've got the unrest, the, the civil rights unrest, all these, all these other things that are going on around it, which paint the bigger picture of what the Apollo program was. The second wave of the women's movement, Stonewall, all kinds of things happening at the same time. And... This building, when it was built and opened in 1976, was really doing current events in some ways, right? So when you're telling the story of the Apollo program, for instance, if you open this in 1976, the last Apollo mission with boots on the moon was in 1972, right? So that's like opening a museum of COVID. Yeah. Right. And you say, (laughs) you know, 
that kind of recent. And they could like, they didn't need to explain it to anyone. They just wanted to show people, here are the real things that you just saw. We don't need to explain the Cold War to you. You're living in it. Uh, we don't need to explain the 1960s to you. Remember, people coming through the door in 1976, likely many of the adults remembered Lindbergh yeah. from 27. Yeah. Um, it was living memory. And so now what we're doing is we're talking to a 21st century audience, many of whom are younger visitors have been born in this century and trying to then explain to them the 60s as a moment. I wasn't there for it, so it helps to paint that picture for me as well. And I think it gives us a great opportunity by forcing us to be explicit about that historical context to then really point out some of those things, what's happening in music, what's happening in politics, how are all of these things kind of crashing into each other the same way that we look in a very complex present right now and all of these things are happening yeah. at the same time. We have a tendency when we are historians to kind of thin that out into this stream all goes together and this stream all goes together and those things are separate. And we know that the living of it is not like that. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it helps, helps to explain things like Starman and Rocket Man, all these songs that were coming yeah. out at the time that are all space songs. Space songs. Yes. The Apollo program was very much an inspiring thing for everyone. It was it was culturally significant itself. It wasn't it was inspiring and inspired, which uh, is a way of thinking about it. And I think immediately obviously historic. Mm. Right? A lot of historic things happen and we find that, you know, a generation later you realize like, oh, that was really important. The Apollo program in the moment was very clearly historic. And so actually in terms of memorabilia, which is part of what I collect and part of what I wrote about in Space Craze, using that as the evidence for the story I was telling, there's a ton of it. Because everybody, if it had Apollo on it, people kept it because yeah. that was going to be important. It was important to show and to have a physical thing, a talisman, a memorial, uh, some sort of piece of memorabilia that would show that you were alive at that time. Absolutely. All right. So you also wrote, uh, and you referenced it earlier in our interview, but you also wrote Right Stuff, Wrong Sex about the women who had spaceflight aspirations decades before Sally Ride made her first spaceflight. So are there any commonly held myths uh, about these women and their involvement in space-related programs? And do you have any favorite museum artifacts about them, including them? Great question. We have almost no artifacts about them. We have artifacts about their lives as pilots um, or their lives in aviation more broadly. Wally Funk famously became uh, one of the women who went up in Blue Origin's uh, spacecraft and so actually got to achieve her spaceflight dream, which if I had told 1990s me, because she was saying that in the 1990s and she was sure yeah. it was going to happen. And I thought, oh, okay. Uh, and it, I should never have bet against her. That story, I think the misunderstanding often about the Lovelace women is that it was some sort of unified program, the same way that we remember seeing in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff with the testing of the Mercury astronauts that they went through as a group for the Phil Kaufman movie gives us a great visual of what that was that Tom Wolfe wrote in his novel. And I think that people don't remember what that cultural moment was like for women in the early 1960s. These were women who were flying in women's air races, but couldn't necessarily take out a car loan in their own name without a husband or a father co-signing for them or a mortgage or a credit card. 
uh, who would have been looking for piloting jobs in paper classified ads in the newspapers that would have had a heading that said jobs for men and jobs for women. And the piloting jobs were all on the jobs for men page. So many of them had resumes of their piloting experience that only had their initials at the top. And they would hope that people had fallen in love enough with the experience by the time they walked in the door that they would give them a chance to be able to fly. Women were not flying in the military services that had ended in 1944 with the end of the Women Air Force Service pilots and didn't start again until the 1970s. And frankly, the women's movement that might have supported them didn't exist yet. The National Organization for Women doesn't start until 1966. So it was a fascinating story, not only because I got to meet many of the women and talk to them and learn about their lives, but also to kind of dig into that moment historically when the space age is really starting and the second wave of the women's movement in the United States is really starting. But neither of them has fully gelled into what they're going to become. And they're kind of bumping into each other a bit also. So it was a great piece to be able to put together. And I always felt like it was a privilege to try to get to tell their story, to tell that story, and to try to get my own writing out of its way, just to be able to let them live on the page. Thank you very much for your time today. This has been really wonderful. This has been awesome. This is so fun. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Don't forget to leave a rating or review on your podcast provider, and please consider sharing space and things with your friends. So I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Weiterkamp when we were with her last month. And a reminder, there is more to come from that interview in a few weeks. While we were at the museums last month, I was really impressed with the way that the popular culture items were integrated throughout the museums. For example, when you first come into the downtown museum, you're greeted with the original Star Trek Enterprise model. And when you enter the Destination Moon exhibit, it starts with the idea of travelling beyond Earth and what people thought that looked like before Apollo, before Mercury, from old sci-fi books to artwork and toys. It really helps set the scene of how much we actually learned from going to the moon, because you get that before and after viewpoint. As we mentioned also in the interview, we mentioned the incredible video wall that's behind the Apollo 11 command module, which helps contextualize the program within the era of history as well, within the 60s. And there are plenty of items all over the place uh, throughout the museums, like Spock ears and R2-D2 painted mailboxes, mission medallions, collector's items, newspapers, movie props. And and I don't think that's controversial, but some do. In fact, we we got a message about the Star Wars X-Wing, which hangs up in the downtown museum. And we got a message when we were there, uh, whilst we were posting about being there. It's a huge movie prop from one of the recent movies. And I think it's really great. I personally don't mind it. it. To me, it helps people connect with space and the idea of traveling to space. And isn't that the whole point? So I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Emily. Yeah, I, I love the fact that I personally like the X-Wing a lot. I, I think um, movies such as, you know, the Star Wars series, I think they almost, I doubt this is why George Lucas made them, but I, I think they almost exist to get kids into the, the realm of sci-fi and space flight. Get them started early. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I think the X-Wing is a really cool artifact sort of showing, you know, the intersection between, you know, real space flight and fictional space flight. And 
and also a vision of what the future to some people might look like. The X-Wing, of course, is a vision from a, a galaxy far, far away and things like that. And I think that's something that shows, okay, this is what thinkers of the 20th century thought this would look like. I, I really love the little pop culture additions to the museum. I think uh, they're important to have, honestly, because um, nothing happened in a vacuum during the 1960s. Let me get my historian voice on, my deep voice. It was a great time of, you know, upheaval in our society and the United States. It it was. It was a, you know, it was a great time of change and upheaval. A lot of stuff was happening, not just culturally, you know, with the music. I mean, obviously, you had the Beatles showed up. Music changed. Fashion Mm. changed. But you also had things like the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which ended segregate. Well, largely, I should say largely ended segregation. Unfortunately, some places it took a while to uh, come around on that, which isn't right. But you had a lot of things like that going on in the United States. And also, unfortunately, in the States, you had a lot of assassinations of, of high profile people. I mean, just a lot was happening at the same time. And simultaneously, you had the government launching rockets trying to get to the moon. Like I said, nothing existed in a vacuum around that time. I feel like, I think some of the astronauts around that time felt like they were in a vacuum because they were so isolated from the rest of the world because they were so busy. But I think Apollo and everything else in the decade, it was just sort of like, I don't know. It was a sign of everything is rapidly changing and, and starting to go into... Okay, we were in the middle half of the 20th century, you know, with a nuclear family house. And now we're going into the future and looking at, okay, what is this going to look like? Obviously, a huge time for change. And I think the changes in pop culture have to be discussed as well. You know, how things went from Perry Como singing these fun little ditties to, you know, you got the Beatles, you got the Rolling Stones all of a sudden who are like dangerous and everything like that. You know, lots of big changes in what everything looked and sounded like. And it's very important to sort of get that across to get people to understand, okay, this is what the decade looked at the beginning and this is what it looked like when we were sending people to the moon. Everything was sort of transforming. Absolutely. And I read it last year, early last year perhaps, but um, I, I think you read Space Craze just before we went uh, out there as well, didn't you, Dr. Dr. Margaret's yep. book? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I loved it. I, I did read it on the plane. I was honestly kind of jealous because I I was like, man, I would love to write a book like this. And she did such a spectacular job on it, you know, that I, I did not feel like I could improve on the subject at all. Because I'm one of those people, if I look at a project, I need to look at competing books. When I say competing, I don't mean like I'm in a competition. I mean like books that talk about the same topic. Yeah, market research. Correct. To see if, okay, could I add something new to this or something? And honestly, I couldn't because she did such a great job. And she, um, I really feel like she covered all the bases. I really thought, thought it was a fun, a readable, and a, and a really scholarly book as well. It, it really covered all the bases of the beginning of the space age to like more modern times and modern, you know, more modern TV shows, things like that. Mm. So I felt she did a fantastic job. I liked the book a lot. Highly recommend it. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved reading it. 
Now, I really would love to hear from our listeners about this. Please send us a message with your thoughts on the place of popular culture within air and space museums. I promise I'm not going to argue with you. I just want to hear your thoughts. So please send us a message or leave a review with your with your thoughts. You can leave reviews on your on your favourite podcast platforms. Also, if you want to find out more about Dr. Margaret, her books, or the Smithsonian, then check the show notes for links. You can find them on spaceandthingspodcast.com or by clicking the link in the description of this episode in your podcast provider. It's time to crack on. So, Emily, what has caught your eye in spaceflight this week? I sent Dave the link. It's an article from space.com. And we have talked about this mission quite a bit during the podcast. We talked about it when I think it launched and we talked about it Mm -hmm. when it hit its target. But NASA's DART mission, the Planetary Defense uh, Experimental Mission, when it it hit Diamorphos, uh, which orbits Didymos on September 26, 2023, not only did the orbit change of uh, Diamorphus, but also the shape of Diamorphus has been found to have been altered. And this, um, according to uh, a team, a University of Bern uh, team led by Sabina Radican, um, they've used uh, state-of-the-art computer modeling. This is from the Space.com article. It is now believed that Diamorphus was a loose rubble pile asteroid. So it may have not been like a solid mass as as previously believed. It may have been something a little loosely more held together that may be a part of the uh, other asteroid Didymos. That's really fascinating. Um, I, like I said, I sent Dave the uh, Space.com article that links to this finding. And um, it has these really amazing 3D models of uh, Diamorphos and what it looks like now. I find planetary defense just... Uh, an incredible topic. Uh, I want to learn more about it. I don't think I'll ever get tired hearing about DART, even though it's obviously the spacecraft is lodged in a <laughs> is lodged in a in a asteroid right now. So um, yeah, I, I'll never get sick and tired of hearing about that. So I just thought that was a cool story and kind of a neat coda to what happened in 2022. I know that story captured a lot of people's curiosity. It was really amazing. So absolutely. Dave, what caught your eye this week? Oh, I can't believe you haven't talked about intuitive machines. Are you dying? (laughs) Yeah, I'm dying because I've heard about it too damn much. Oh my God. Yeah, I am dying. I think, I I think I'm just going to die right here. I'm so tired of it. I hate saying this. Uh, God bless. Um, I think it was Odysseus is the name of the lander. Uh, yeah. God bless him. I, I'm tired of hearing of it just because space hipsters. Just because space hipsters, man. And you know what I'm also sick of hearing about? Surveyor as well. I'm sick as hell of hearing about Surveyor. If I hear the word Surveyor one more time, I'm going to jump out a window. So Right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you to have to jump out a window uh, then. because I no! I, I'd, I'd like to put some context on that because for some people who aren't in space hipsters or perhaps haven't been online this last week, explain what happened. Okay. Last week, uh, I'm trying to do my anchor woman voice here. Uh, <laughs> last week, the uh, intuitive machines, Odysseus Lander, landed on the moon. Shortly after landing, it was announced a resounding success. However, uh, the next day, Following its landing, it was announced that it had landed, but it was tipped on its side. 
So um, unfortunately, this impeded a lot of the antenna and a lot of the data flow coming to and from Earth. It, it impeded a lot of that. Uh, we don't have many good pictures of the of the landing or the lunar surface. Uh, I think we've got one picture, maybe. The landing was, I guess you could call it partial success. It did land on the moon, but just tipped over. And since then, I don't know how to put this without cussing, there's been a huge debate, not just in space hipsters, but in other spaceflight groups about how to build a lunar lander. The big criticism is that Odysseus has a higher center of gravity. Allegedly, I don't know if this is the truth or not. For me, it's hard to determine a spacecraft's mass by what it looks like. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't work on the spacecraft, so I don't know what its center of gravity is. But it, it, there's been a lot of speculation that a possible higher center of gravity caused it to tip over. And we should build things that look like Surveyor. And Surveyor, if you've seen, that's the 1960s spacecraft that landed on the moon. It's more like a spider, isn't it? It looks like us. It's, it's very squat. It looks kind of, yeah. it looks like Viking. There's a yeah. lot of similarities if you, uh, between it and the Vikings of the 70s. They're they, similar bus, I would say, because you got the lander and then you got stuff that's kind of inside the lander. But it's very squat. So we have that debate that is still currently going on on social media. Never in my life did I think the word surveyor would trigger me, but it does now. <laughs> that is now a trigger. Um, along you no, you with no longer enjoy Apollo 12. <laughs> yeah. If I see that damn picture of Surveyor 3 again, I'm going to kick something. I'm seriously like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I tweeted a picture out and actually got a lot of likes. Uh, it's been zero days without a Surveyor mention. <laughs> That's basically what happened with that. I do have to say a big shout out to uh, Intuitive Machines. I'm not criticizing them at all. It's very hard. Um, and we're hoping to discuss this in a future episode of Space and Things. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to land things on the moon, which kind of tells you how hard it was to do this in the 1960s. I think we we see the Apollo missions and we think, well, we did that in the 60s. That's easy. It was not easy back then. And there were a lot of missions that almost did not happen because there were problems during the mission itself where, you know, NASA was almost like, we, we shouldn't do this. It was very risky. So I feel like the Intuitive Machines mission, you know, it being, I would say, a partial success does show you, you know, how it's not easy to do this stuff. You know, I mean, we're landing another spaceship on a body that's half a million miles out. That's not easy. If it was easy, we could all do it, right? I'd be building a lunar lander yeah. in my house. So there's, a, there's obviously a lot that's been said about this. And thank you for that wonderful synopsis of what's yes, been going on i hope so i hope it made sense i hope it made sense i'm a little yeah. i'm under the weather so i may be a little loopy and plus i'm annoyed because yeah, i've yeah. been hearing the s word a lot but, but i think it's it's certainly caught people's attention this and I, I think there's another side to it which may annoy people but i'm gonna bring it up i don't think it, it might annoy you i don't know but it's it's certainly interesting I think that the, I saw someone say that the, the success rate of landing on the moon is, is around 44% or something like yeah. that. It, it's actually not that high at all. I think that would surprise a lot of people. And obviously a number of countries have recently tried to do it and have failed. A couple of them have, have been successful or partially successful. China seemed to have got over their initial problems and have, have seemed to have landed 
a couple of things down there, which on there, which is quite impressive. And they're sending back some incredible stuff. So there seems to be, and a lot of people almost seem very angry and upset about this. And I think that's the interesting thing. There seems to be a lot of Americans who are very confused almost about how it's not been a success. And I think it's kind of baffled them in, in a way that they weren't surprised when other countries failed. They're surprised that America have failed. It surprises me that there's this level of confusion. There is probably no one who is currently working on moon landing activities who also worked back when the Apollo program yeah. and the space race was happening. No, I can't imagine there is. That it's, was it's almost 50... 60 years ago. Exactly. There may be someone, but highly unlikely. That expertise is gone. Yeah. And even though we've got better technology for materials and, and designing and things like that, the hands-on experience isn't there anymore. And while there wasn't a found landing in the Apollo program... There was failed landing by American robotic spacecraft that paved the way for Apollo. Yeah, absolutely. Like Ranger. Uh, Ranger exactly. Yeah, Rangers was... failed a bunch of times. I want to say Surveyor didn't have a perfect record either. I could be wrong, but there were a lot of problems. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah, of course, we have seen failures for other countries and their space programs. There has almost been a smugness which I've observed in spaceflight groups, not just spaceflight hipsters, not just space hipsters, and other space forums, which many, and not all, but from many Americans. There's also those who have attempted to downplay the achievements of those countries that aren't American. It's 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 very odd. It's very odd. It is odd. To I observe agree. this this behaviour. It's like I love spaceflight. I'm not American. But I love America. I love visiting. I'd move there if I could get a visa, if it was easy enough for musicians to get visa. But, but from the time I spent with Americans and in America, there's a cultural phenomenon which I've witnessed. It might not be a phenomenon, but for me it's a phenomenon. And I've witnessed this in person and I've watched witnesses online. And I've not seen it for other countries or, or their general populations, but... It's what I call hyper-national pride. Yeah. The love for, for one's own country is huge. That There's almost, there are saying, arrogance about America it, and it being the best, which is drilled into Americans from a very young age. We are the best. We are the greatest. God bless America. America is, is amazing. And America is amazing. It's achieved things that no one else has done in spaceflight. I'm not taking away any of that. But this isn't the same kind of nationalism that sports fans get when they're cheering on their country at a major sporting event. It's very different. And and when something like this happens last week, when the first attempted landing of a US private lander essentially fails, there's a weird disbelief that seems to kick in for some people. Yeah, uh, And it, it, it's been quite odd to observe it. Uh, and I hope someone somewhere is doing some studying and research into this weird patriotism thing that's that goes on over in your country i can't decide whether it's a good or bad thing it probably is a bit of both i think it's certainly worthy of discussion i think in certain aspects i think it's amazing that people are so proud of their country and for good reason i think also it makes people a little bit blind and a little bit as i say arrogant or yeah. perhaps is the wrong word but i don't know but Cocky, yeah, like, yeah, like oh, look, we've already done it. We've done the yeah, we've program. done this and then before. We should be able to do it now, you know, yes, and stuff. And and it, that doesn't mean anything. That uh, I hate to say it, that people it weren't. Apollo was over almost sixty years ago. I mean, if you look at the beginning of Apollo, it was way over sixty years ago. It was in the early sixties. 
So all the people who worked in those programs are either in their 90s now or they passed away. You know, not making light yeah. of that at all. And the unfortunate thing is we're having to learn this stuff again from the ground up. I mean, we have obviously all the Apollo documents and everything like that. And we know basic orbital mechanics, but like I think we both said, you know, if space was an easy thing, everybody would be building a lunar lander in their in their Absolutely. you know, in their living room, right? It's not easy. Yeah, it it's not easy. And I'm sure there'll be other failures of other American and other countries' robotic spacecraft. Oh yeah. As well as successes. People will learn from their mistakes. You know, China's a good example. They're doing good things. They've done they tried a few times and they got got it right. The Soviet Union was a good example. They didn't get it right straight away and they were doing robotic craft well into the seventies, yeah. landing on the moon. They still very haven't successful. landed so, a spacecraft on Mars. I mean, and that's not and that's not a diss against Russia, I I at all. It just um Landing on Mars is not easy too. But I, I think mean, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because I think I think people accept that landing on Mars is hard, but they don't accept that landing on the Moon is hard. Yeah, probably because of the success of the Apollo program. Yeah, but it is hard, and I think we just all, everyone, everyone who's interested in spaceflight, everyone who's as passionate about NASA and certain companies in in America that are building these spacecraft, just need to take a bit of a breath and go. This, we're going to have more of these experiences where it doesn't go quite right whilst we relearn all this stuff. And if you want to blame someone, blame Nixon because he is the one that cancelled it all back, back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got, exactly. Blame him, he's dead. There's, He's not going to yeah, know. Exactly. He's not going to know. Yeah, exactly. Just blame him. Yeah, no one cares, right? Yeah. Anyway, there's, there's two other stories that have caught my eye, which I'm going to bring up very briefly. They're kind of related. There was an article on space.com about VR headsets making a difference for astronaut es- exercise in space and how them wearing the VR headsets when they're doing their cycling is making them, inspiring them to push a little harder than just looking at the same four walls that they see all the time. I know it's really obvious, but I just lo- like w- when someone says, oh yeah, well, they've been using these v- VR w- headsets and it's really helped their exercise. Of course it has. But it's cool that they're doing it. It's good that they're doing it. On a similar thing, while we're talking about technology for current space, human space flight, there's been the first surgery robot performing some a experiments on bite. the ISS. Yeah. A curling <laughs> bot. So, so they've been controlling it from the ground and it's been um, slicing some rubber bands. Okay, good. Um, no. So obviously <laughs> good. No, nothing on, nothing on no humans people. yet. Good. But but it, it it's worked and it's showing that actually and what they're talking about is the, the example they gave is someone gets appendicitis in space and there's no surgeon on board. What we're going to do? And as we're looking at more longer term other ideas of what we can do, robotics is going to come into this. So I think it's great that they're starting to experiment on this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'll put links to those articles as well as the article that Emily mentioned earlier and a little bit about Odysseus in the show notes along with uh, our, our information about Dr. Weitzkamp. To submit questions for any of our upcoming guests, join us on Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash spaceandthings. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you. So we're glad that you're here and especially thankful that you made it to the end of the podcast. I always assume that people just switch off before they get to this bit. They hear us talk about our news stories and then they turn it off. Once they reach that last thing, I'm, they, everyone knows what's coming up. It's just our sign up. So I'm never sure exactly what to say right now. But for those of you who are still here uh, and 
To remain on topic with our interview today, I'm going to sign off with a quote from my favourite fictional alien. Until next week, this is Dave signing off. Nanu, nanu. Well, how do I follow that? Anyway, thanks to (laughs) everyone for listening and supporting what we do here. We really do appreciate it. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast. Thanks for listening. New episodes every Thursday.